news is not the task of fixing the entire world at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Clarissa Pinkola is this. Welcome back to Mend, a place where we explore the edges where we lean into the larger tapestry to see where exactly we are being called to play a part in the larger healing of this world. What is our work? What is ours to care for? I am your host, Amy Day, yogi, mama, herbalist, coach, community tender, storyteller, and organizer. Please join me as we sit in this virtual circle with one another and ask the questions, what is within our reach and what right now are we being called to mend? Hello, my beloved community. How are you doing right now? At the moment, um, I, like all of you, I'm holed up with my family. Um, For me, we're at the end of the road, up in the woods, uh, trying, as everyone else is, just to figure out this new normal. And it's an unusual situation in these times as um, we share our property with a few other families, uh, which means that I have two other mamas to reach out to when I need some guidance on how to plan for homeschooling while also trying to accomplish some adult things in the course of a day. Um, It means my child is one of very few right now who has access to four built-in playmates and because of this she sees this dramatic turn of events currently as uh, less of a sacrifice and more of an extended trip to Neverland. And this also means that I have face-to-face access to fellow cooks and artists and musicians and gardeners and teachers and yogis right in the confines of my own backyard. Um, I guess you could say in some ways we have been unintentionally prepping for something like this for a long time. And I would just want to say that I know how unique and blessed our situation is and I by no means take it for granted. Um, There is some very real need and suffering and isolation and unrest happening in our world right now. And so I know that some of my work, as we'll talk more about inside these upcoming episodes, is to share from this deep well of blessings that I have been handed and extend it back out um, however best I can. So during this time, I just want to say, like many, I'm offering um, some donation-based yoga classes online via Zoom. Um, Right now, mine are on Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. I'll just leave a link to those in the show notes so you can join us if you like. Um, Through my paid um, formal quote-unquote work, um, I'm also offering uh, twice-weekly Um, what I'm calling virtual community care calls on Monday and Wednesday, again at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And this is just meant to be an offering, um, again, from my employer, formerly the Humble Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, as a way to continue to drop into sacred space and practice and community um, 
as we're separated from one another right now. And again, I'll link to that with a little bit more info in the show notes um, if that's something that speaks to you. We'll just take some time and light the chalice and read some words and share in some um, joys and sorrows, if that means anything to you, if you're a, a UU. Um, I'm also organizing uh, weekly virtual calls for my fellow healers right now, um, where we take the time to connect and share resources and strategies for um, well, survival, um, because many of my fellow wellness practitioners, um, people who do a lot of hands-on work like massage therapists, in-person healers, um, they are drastically cut off from ways to earn their livelihood right now. Um, so I'll be organizing those calls as well. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes. So a few months ago, I started collecting interviews. Uh, I reached out to some friends nurses, ministers, social workers, with the thought that I would start exploring this topic of work. Because recently my own work life had shifted from that of a struggling entrepreneur to hourly paid work. And this is something that I initially struggled with internally, honestly. Um, I'd always seen myself as someone who was put on this earth to forge my own path to create my own titles and systems and possibilities and livelihood. And yet I have to admit, I struggle inside the entrepreneurial space. I hate the hustle. I hate the grind. I hate the constant having to think inside promotional and marketing terms. Um, I do not like feeling like I have to attach a value and a price point to every single thing that I offer. Uh, you may have heard me say that if it were up to me, I would just do the thing, right? I would create the class or the workshop or the offering and just let people magically find me and let the money mystically filter in from some divinely appointed font. Um, but we know that's not really how it works. Uh, to be inside the entrepreneurial space, you need not only to be in the mode of offering where you're creating vehicles for sharing your unique gifts and services, but you're constantly finding ways to grow your audience and your client base as well. These are very different skill sets. And as someone who has worked and struggled, again, that work, <laughs> that word, inside these dual roles for years, um, I doff my hat to any and all of you who are able to make this work, really. So when the opportunity for paid um, employment came my way, I said yes. Yes to a steady, albeit smaller, supplementary income. I said yes to clear-cut schedules and expectations and to-do lists. Yes to work, um, blessedly, that felt meaningful and rich and full. And in so many ways, shifting gears like this has been the very thing that I've been needing. And then, pandemic hit. And the subject of work took on some very, very different meanings. I had set out initially in the context of this season to understand the role of work within our lives and our society. What is the proper relationship to labor inside a crumbling and toxic culture? How do we straddle the difficult divide of wanting to provide for ourselves and our families and even enjoy some semblance of a middle-class lifestyle and provide something meaningful and valuable as well? How do we make a contribution that moves beyond just playing a cog in the larger capitalist industrious wheel? So 
catastrophe has a way of making these questions moot, right? Because here we all are, sequestered in our own homes, many of us unable to work for pay, struggling to tend to the daily domestic work of childcare, schooling, meals, all of that, and watching the global economy crumble around and beneath us. So the question then becomes, what is our work right now? To answer that, I've chosen to bring on for this first um, season four, and I say that in lots of air quotes because it's been a while, (laughs) I've brought on my friend um, who is straddling that divide in a very real way. So my guest today is Morgan Fitzpatrick, a nurse practitioner living in the heart of Seattle where the virus hit early on. Morgan is originally from Canada, but spent most of her childhood on a ranch in rural California, which, uh, may I say, is how I came to know her. We grew up in the same tiny town in the foothills of the Sierras. Her husband works in tech, and together they have a precocious and brilliant daughter named Frida, who they are tending together in this new world as she continues to go to work at the nearby clinic and work with an incredibly marginalized population and he learns the ropes of working and child rearing and schooling from home. Morgan earned her BA from UC Berkeley in 2002 and went on to gain her master's in public health from, pardon me, public health (laughs) from San Francisco State University in 2007. We spoke last week on a Thursday, and I want to say to her and to all of you, in an effort to get this talk out to you in a timely fashion, there has been very little editing done here. So I hope you'll pardon the ums and pauses and coughs um, that I normally take the time to take out because I did want to get this conversation to you in a timely fashion. She was gracious enough to take some time before she was due at the clinic and share her thoughts and expertise on the current situation. We talked about what it looks like in her current city, but also the larger parameters for health, not just physical, but mental and emotional for many worldwide, and how we can better care for ourselves and each other during this time. Beyond just hand-washing and self-quarantining, Morgan shared her advice on what we could be doing at this time to be of benefit. And as mothers of two young children, we also found a way to loop in some wisdom from the Disney song catalog as well. I know that you will find in here some well-thought-out ideas on how to move forward at this time and what to keep in mind. I have to say, after we spoke, Morgan texted me to tell me that she thought of about 10 other things that she wanted to share. But I want to say, as touchy-feely as this may sound, that I believe in the holy synchronicity of these conversations. I believe that whatever is shared here is the exact right thing at the exact right time, going out to exactly who needs to be hearing it. And so if you find yourself here listening to these words, I pray, may they be of benefit. May they bolster and inform you at this time. May they remind you of your own holy work and efforts and obligation to this moment in human history. And as always, may they remind you of the powerful thread that you carry at this time and help you lean into your own corner of the larger web. 
if you make it to the end, you'll hear a little spoken word piece um, I've offered for this time. And if you, like me, are fed by words, uh, I invite you to listen to that point. Thank you, as always, for being here. Again, check the show notes for any links and resources that we mention here. And thank you to Morgan for coming and being part of this work at this time. And now, the show. Well, I was just wondering um, if you could maybe give us kind of just a little insight. What is what is your world look like at the heart of this right now? And what has kind of been the, the timeline as this, this situation has progressed in your home and in your city? Yeah, so um, I'm not going to be able to get the dates exactly right. I'll give you sort of a rough um, idea, but just to situate myself a little bit, um, for people who don't know me, I'm a nurse practitioner. I um, live in downtown Seattle, right downtown, about two blocks from Pike Place and, um, you know, a couple of blocks from most of the Amazon buildings. And um, we moved here about a year ago. Um, I'm, a, I'm a primary care nurse practitioner. I also have a master's in public health. Though I should, should caveat that with, um, it was a public health degree in community health education, not epidemiology or biostatistics or any of those, like probably super, super helpful degrees to have right about now. Um, but do I think come to my work with a degree of um, public health mindedness? Um, and I work at a clinic about a block away. It's, uh, it's in Post Alley, which is a tourist destination, um, but it's a, it's a homeless clinic, um, mostly, um, that we do um, see, you know, we'll take anyone, but I would say the vast majority of our patients are, are homeless or living in the supportive housing um, facilities downtown, which actually I was so supremely um, happy to see how many there are down here. Um, and many of those buildings have our nurses um, in them. So, you know, dis late December, early January, um, started paying attention to reports coming out of China. Um, and, you know, at the time was like, you know, we got to think about it. We got to, we got to, you know, wonder what people are doing in order to contain it. Um, all early reports seem to be that um, it was under control. I think we've since learned that the government was vastly underplaying the degree of their outbreak. And um, no, I, I want to use the word covering up, but at least misrepresenting the situation in Wuhan. Um, and the degree to which they continued to allow international travel um, in those early days probably, you know, we'll probably look back on that as, as one of the fundamental reasons why things got so out of hand. <clears throat> in any case, our first cases were in the Life Care Center um, up north. And um, I know, I think by now people have probably heard the stories of um, you know, how many people fell ill in that, um, um, I think, I believe it was a skilled nursing facility, not an assisted living place. It was a skilled nursing facility. And um, 
And, you know, I think that they recognize- Can you clarify in layman's terms, Morgan, just what a skilled nursing- Yeah, I don't, because that, that, assisted living, I understand, but the skilled nursing doesn't register in my brain. Sure. So skilled nursing facilities are typically staffed almost entirely by RNs um, and CNAs, LVNs, so certified nursing assistants and licensed vocational nurses. They're, um, they're, they're clinical, they're staffed by clinical people as opposed to assisted livings, where like they might have someone who is a pharmacy tech or maybe some, some, um, licensed vocational nurses, but by and large, they're civilian run and staffed, um, as opposed to skilled nursing facilities where um, the people on staff are are clinical people. Um, Most often those, and tell me when I've given you too much information because I can (laughs) talk about this for a long time, um, those are mostly um, people who, who are, too sick to be at home and being taken care of by their families, but, but they, you know, are not sick enough to be in the hospital. Okay. But you are looking at an elderly population. Very, typically very elderly population okay. um, or permanently disabled um, for one reason or another. Okay. And that's where we started seeing the first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which makes a ton of sense because, because what we're finding out about this illness is that the vast majority of us are either completely asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And um, I mean, that's not true in all cases. There are some people who get quite ill, but, um, but you know, we're walking around doing our day and the people who get really sick really severely, really quickly um, are older folks. And so it makes sense that we would, we would, start to see it there when they again when they do the retrospective i suspect they're going to find that it was probably here in december or january um we don't we don't really know yet um and we don't actually know if those were in fact the first cases those were the first cases that were tested and were positive um that's the nature of this particular beast what in some ways what makes it most dangerous is the fact that for most people it's not dangerous um and it doesn't throw up red flags immediately so um that was that was end of february um and you know in our clinic we started saying hey like what do we need to be doing differently and, and things weren't really being done any differently um, pretty early on. Um, it wasn't really until two weeks ago when we started to fundamentally change how we were responding. And really not until last week did everything truly impact workflows. Um, and, and so it was just this like sort of slow building fog (laughs) you know it's just this like like it 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 feels fast because things are changing every day um we are i mean i i i feel so bad for our poor customer service people on the phone who are having to talk to patients because um recommendations are changing every day the way that our our systems are responding to it are changing every day um and and they have to like be the front lines and talk to people about it. We've 
we have been uh, in, in our clinical staff been largely protected from that. Um, but I think that the 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 sort of the fundamental set feeling or sensation is is just uncertainty, um, and and that that is true for you know the virus itself for the for the diagnosis the treatment and the prognosis and the risk of the virus itself but then you know i look out my window and there's nobody out there like like just the day-to-day in a major city being hit by this has like done such a 180 flip it's it's kind of unreal um and at some point i'd like to get to talk about like like the underbelly like what we're not seeing um but at least at least on the surface you know hey commute sure is great <laughs> right um is, is fabulous <laughs> and yeah. tons of online deals you know um the lights are so cheap right now it's am- yeah yeah um and then you know the majority i would say the majority of like the people in sort of the chattering class the the pundit class the people who are on um media the people who are they're all you know able to work from home and then and and seeing drastic work reductions like but they're not unemployed right and so they're bored and they're like oh, i'm sick of netflix already like you know let's make memes <laughs> let's right. make memes yeah if i see another meme toilet paper meme i'm like get it barf um <laughs> well and on that note so maybe um you know, because it's like, it keeps coming to my head that this is, this is that opportunity, right? I mean, and I think we all get a little bit of leeway in this situation. We need some levity. We need some, some silliness. We need some comic relief. However, I mean, I just, I'm in this boat of like, um, this is not the moment to just retreat to our nuclear family, our little unit and just wait out the storm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. until things get back to quote unquote normal, you know, this is that moment. If we are resourced, you know, if we have time, if we have extra, if we have health, if we have a car, if we have, you know, like whatever we feel comfortable offering, you know, like this is the time to be offering it. And so, so, I mean, so let's talk about that underbelly a little bit, you know, because I mean, I'm seeing things already where you're seeing, um, you know, reports of, you know, people are asking um, law enforcement, like, what's the biggest thing you see during times of, of shutdown and isolation? And like, first answer is, you know, it's domestic violence rates go up, you know, because people are all enclosed and, you know, they haven't learned any new coping skills or, you know, frustration venting techniques. And so, so what are some of those, those things that go beneath the surface of what we're seeing? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously these are all going to be anecdotal. Um, what I've seen so far, um, in our, in our clinic population. And I should also say that, um, because our, um, our telemedicine 
capabilities haven't fully come online yet. Us on clinical staff are not as um, privy to most of the conversations because like I said before, most of the phone calls are being um, fielded and handled by our customer service and um, our nurses on, on those front lines. And so thus by the time it gets to us, you know, a lot has been filtered out. Um, but I'll just tell you a little bit of what I've seen, which is, um, you know, just yesterday had a guy who, um, came to the front door, had a cough because he had had pneumonia, like, you know, a, a month ago, he had tested negative for COVID in the hospital a month ago, um, but still having symptoms. So our sweet, brilliant and plucky you know, kid <laughs> who is um, our screener at our front door said, you can't come in, you have a cough. On the face of it, completely reasonable. Um, he is someone newly to the city from Tennessee and um, homeless staying in a shelter. Um, has no phone. Well, has a phone, but it's like um, he's only able to use it when it's internet connected. And so she, you know, said, okay, go and call us. And he's like, where do I go to call you? Like, you know, public libraries are closed. Um, cafes are closed. And, um, you know, I'm new, I'm new here. How do I do this? And, um, and so he literally came around to the, the window and I'm talking to him through the window, like trying to figure out what to do as far as next steps. Um, and so I, you know, I mean, obviously he was frustrated. He was like, look, somebody needs to listen to my lungs. You know, all of the things that we do for patients, we put our hands on patients, we listen to their bodies, we touch their bodies, all of those things have been taken away from us and taken away from patients in a time when that kind of um, close contact is, is really crucial to healing. Um, and, and, you know, to a large extent, that's been at least on the front lines that's been taken away from us. It's, it's still available in, in some ways inpatient. Um, but of course it, we then have these barriers of the, the goggles and the masks and the gloves and the gowns, um, that are perfectly appropriate given the clinical situation, but, um, but put barriers between, between people as well. Um, so other things, um, that I've seen people who, um, can't get the alcohol that they need. And so going into, uh, you know, withdrawal, um, and needing, um, hospitalization because they did not plan on going, you know, going dry. <laughs> um, we have seen, um, so far, as far as I know, no increase in opiate um, deaths um, for, because of overdose, but um, we're definitely trying to message to people who use on a regular basis, like, be prepared for, um, you know, there not being enough heroin, <laughs> like, to, to, again, go into unintentional withdrawal um, and steps to 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 protect yourself from that. I'm giving out a lot more um, 
I'm giving out a lot more Narcan. I'm giving out a lot more, um, you know, all of the supportive medications that can help people uh, manage withdrawal symptoms. Um, just sort of prophylactically, just in, in anticipation of those kinds of disruptions. Um, and then there's, you know, there's the case of like, well, so I haven't actually seen it yet, but I'm just absolutely petrified. I, you know, I have, I have three or four um, fairly stable schizophrenic patients who come in for injections of their medications who also have COPD, who also have, you know, shortness of breath and kind of a chronic cough and chronic sputum and, and, you know, what happens when they get screened out and I don't know about it and the nurse doesn't know about it and, you know, they're walking around not being adequately treated, um, pharmacy access has been really restricted uh, again completely understandably because that's a prime location for sick people to come in to get medications and infect others like i i completely understand that and and most of the pharmacies are trying to ramp up their mail services um but but it's in the mail so so let's say I have a patient who's symptomatic now. I just touched my nose and I'm like, I'm going to not touch my face the entire podcast. And I totally just touched my nose. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just going to say, yeah, you're a professional, Morgan. Come on, keep it together. Keep it together. We all know this, this face touching business is not, right. Right. not in order. <laughs> I did just wash my hands. Um, in any case, yeah, so, so, so what do we do? Do you know if I've got somebody who needs an acute medication, maybe for something entirely different, um, you know, do I send them in to the pharmacy? Because if I send it, if they get it in the mail, it's going to be three or four days. And like, and so, at, or, you know, what I'm really struggling right now is with patients who have been, hospitalized and need follow-up so that first visit after hospitalization is obvious is is in many cases one of the most important visit in addition to the um, you know if the patient has been given home health um, because the you know what we desperately want is to keep them from going back to the hospital for obvious reasons you know during normal times but now even more important, hospitals taxed. I don't want someone who was in for a heart failure exacerbation to have to go back. And so, but that person is also very vulnerable. Um, and so if we have, you know, virus hanging around on our door, outside door handle or, you know, the, the bathroom sink or whatever, like bringing that person to us, um, isn't ideal. And a phone visit is not ideal because in many of those cases of hospitalizations, you know, they've had wounds that need to be looked at. They've, they've got, you know, they need a weight check to make sure that their heart failure is still under control. Um, and, and so have, I mean, it's not as dire as deciding who gets a ventilator or not. Like I'm not equating the, my decisions to that, but it is a decision that um, those types of decisions are ones that we're making every day and the types of decisions that weigh pretty, pretty heavily. Yeah. 
you you touched on this briefly just this idea of kind of the um the human aspect of healing and dispensing medicine and how how touch is a part of that even though it's like kind of regulated touch like you said or or you know um uh, sheathed touch mm-hmm. um, and there's all that research around you know kind of like narrative medicine where you know they say that a piece and I've, I've witnessed this I've actually been been your your patient in the clinical setting at one point and and I and you, this is something you do really really well and seem to understand um, on, a, on a deep level is this idea of really sitting down being present and giving that um, that I see you that kind of um what would you call reflective listening you know like really deeply being present for your patient and they you know they've done these studies that show as as you know um you know this is actually part of of the medicine part of the healing process is the the fact that the patient feels seen heard yep so I'm just thinking about you know there's so much weight right now being put upon our healthcare system and that's the big thing right it's like stay home because our healthcare system our healthcare professionals are not equipped. We don't have the manpower. We don't have the resources to treat everyone. Um, I mean, because there's people that needed stuff before this virus hit, you know, there's people with underlying conditions with diabetes, with heart disease, you name it. We had plenty, we had a health crisis before, you know, this dropped. So, so I'm just wondering as someone who wears these, these various hats, you know, you're, you're a mother, you're a community member, you're someone who cares deeply about community health, you know, you've made a, a life study of and profession of this. What are some of the things that you see that we um, as community members can be doing just to meet some of those needs? You know, obviously we can't provide the kind of, you know, care and expertise that you provide, but it's just as far as how we serve one another and show up. Um, I mean, even mental health, I'm thinking of all the isolation people are experiencing, you know, um, yeah. Many people, they're not getting much access to the outside world. Um, so just what, what do you see as some of the vital things that we can be doing as community members? Like what does that work look like right now for community health? Yeah. So, so what for, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things come to mind, but one of the first things that does is to really use this time to truly reflect on what it means to be social animals. So, um, I mean, I, I think that that the word social distancing is super important. I think it, it's a it's a nice branding mechanism because it is very clear what is expected and it, without a lot of gray. And it is um, and it also gets at the true heart of like of of communicable disease and the the ways in which we the the weapons that we have against communicable disease. So I I love that term for that reason. What I I was thinking about this in the elevator yesterday because I was riding with another couple and and we both kind of put our sleeves over our hands to touch the buttons. And it occurred to me like I wonder how long this is going to last, you know, like, is it going to be that we are that petrified to, to, to touch things? Is that going to go away soon? Is that going to, is that going to, is that going to persist? Are we going, you know, is the um, sort of germophobia, like how much is that going to sink into our psyche? And then, 
And then how much is that going to affect our like continue to affect our relationships? And, um, and I think that we are in a moment now where, you know, it is really important to be um, mindful of those things, but, but we have to all be reflective about like, um, when is showing up to support someone worth the risk? So, you know, if someone is in mental health crisis, when is it, when is it worth the risk to, um, to reach out to them in a, in a physical way, not just a, not just a, you know, video chat kind of a way. Um, you know, the other day, you know, we've been all instructed six feet away, um, from each other at work, which is like impossible. <laughs> um, it's like the tiniest little <laughs> clinic. Um, but you know, one of our, our mental health providers came into the provider room and she was like, I'm really struggling. The stories I'm hearing are, you know, just seem to be acutely worse. And, and I went over and I, and I sort of gave her a half hug, rubbed her back. And I was like, I'm not supposed to be doing this, but like, you need it right now. And I'm, and I'm going to take that risk. I asked permission first and she said, yeah, but, um, but you know, she, and she thanked me for it that I say. So like, so, so I think, I think we have to understand the degrees to which we take calculated risks every single day. We take a calculated risk getting into a car. We take a calculated risk whatever, going skydiving, like all of the things that we do, they are often, we often weight certain risks higher than others. Um, but I think we, we do have to consider the, the, the real risk of um, isolating from each other too much. Um, because we will see, we will see more suicides we will see more um, overdoses. We will see, you know, these kind of the the illnesses of despair. We will see those worsen. And and one of the things I haven't heard anybody talk about yet, and I'm certainly no expert, but um, my guess is that we will start to see this more. But the trauma of this moment, and and what I hope is that we can sort of look around and recognize sort of a collective trauma and from that on the other side of it try to be um more mindful of like what trauma is and how it affects people and and um you know that there has been a movement for trauma-centered care i don't know how much um you know and i've heard about it but um but i am hopeful that we can um bring that more to the forefront because um, not only a, a collective trauma, but a very, very real trauma of, um, you know, the folks who go through the, the actual illness or the actual illness of someone they love um, and, um, and, and taking lessons from that and, and, and learning how to work through it. Yeah. 
Well, and it just seems like it's a great, you know, so it's like I started this and I can't even call them seasons anymore because there's been such a lapse between 15 <laughs> episodes, but that's okay. I'm trusting that I'm right, right on time for whatever this <laughs> offering and who it needs to go to. Um, well, he just snowed here in March, late March. So, right. So everything's <laughs> happening <laughs> in the perfect chaotic nun season. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was talking to my sister just before you and I hopped on to this and she was just saying, so she's, you know, social work. And so she's still being called into work. Her kids are at home. You know, they're old enough to be by themselves. Technically, she's got a teenager and, you know, a 10 year old. So technically they can be at home. Um, but just everyone's feeling in disarray, you know, like, you know, her boyfriend's staying there with them and he's like been in between jobs and he just got, you know, his CrossFit certification and he's ready to do all this stuff. And like, now he's kind of in this place of like, what am I doing? You know, like, what's my purpose in all of this? You know, what, what job am I going to get right now? And the kids are kind of, you know, my, my niece is 16, so she's a little, more self-involved than, you know, most humans. <laughs> if you're listening to this Zoe, I love you. I say that from <laughs> deep love. Um, <laughs> but just like, you know, she's upset because, you know, she can't see her friends and, you know, like none of all these things are, she doesn't have access to right now. Yeah. And I was just trying to, you know, like the initial purpose of talking about work this, this season, quote unquote, was to reframe this idea of like, what is our work? What is our labor? What is our holy and human obligation to one another? And what value do we bring to the, the larger collective? Yeah. And, and that was the conversation between me and my sister. It was just like, but, but, you know, your boyfriend's doing work. He's at home with your oh, children, yes. you know, yeah. and even though he's never been a parent before, like this is, he's providing valuable labor Absolutely. to two you know, children who would otherwise feel completely unmoored, you know, and like your, your children's work is to like, you know, start to see this as a reframe, you know, this yeah. is not about our, our likes, our dislikes, our, our gotcha. predilections, you know, like what we would prefer. This is, this is a complete right. <laughs> sea change. Um, and maybe, I don't know if this is helpful to you or to your listeners, but so, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out what exactly to learn from the China experience versus the South Korean experience versus the Italian experience. And, and one of the interesting sort of hot takes I've seen out of the Korean um, popular literature is that the, um, the, way in which Koreans approached the work of, um, of staying home and doing everything they can to, um, to, to not be transmissible, but at the same time to keep the vibrancy of their communities alive, was that it was a civic duty and that there is this idea of, um, there is a very strong idea of communal responsibility as opposed to individual liberty. And, um, and so they're sort of culturally. I, I want to pause because those words are, are the, you're, they're, there's, obviously such a big part of your own personal vocabulary that they, they float through your mouth and your, your mind. But can you go back and say what you said one more time? Um, just because I think it's as far as the personal responsibility and the communal, I, I messed sure. it up already. Because so, <laughs> I just think it's really important and it's not part of the American consciousness. So I think it's worth re-emphasizing. Right, right. So, so South Korea is, um, is a 
capitalist country. It's a, you know, a, a booming economy. I've been to Seoul. It feels like any major metropolitan city in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it, it would feel recognizable to any American, I think, who went there. Um, and however, um, at least the ways in which the Korean popular culture has been describing their response is that the, the individual Joe Schmo in, you know, wherever, Gangnam, Korea, is going to say, it is my duty to my neighborhood and my community and to my country to stay home. And, and I'm sure that there were plenty of people who faced hardships, but it, it sounded like a, a reframe of, it kind of reminds me of like the sort of mythology that you hear out of like World War II America, where, you know, people were redeployed from their machine, you know, their washing machine making factory to make Jeeps for the war effort. And like, you know, women were redeployed into fat manufacturing, etc. And there is this mythology that everybody sort of did it because that what was that's what was necessary for the war effort. Um, and and the ways in which um, I have heard the the Korean response talk to like mirror that really really closely. Um, and you know and and yet in the states it's like so far been framed as like my personal you know i can't get toilet paper i can't get um you know i can't see my friends i i'm bored um and i think that that is i mean granted like you know i'm seeing this all on facebook and so it's hard to like it things are so things are so skewed. I, I, you know, I don't want to make too big of assumptions. However, you know, I mean, I mean, look at the way it's talked about at, at the governmental level, we are closing our borders. We are, um, at least so far not meeting with, you know, the G7 or the G20, like major international organizations that could coordinate a global response. Um, it's been city mayors and state governors who have been largely defining the response as opposed to sort of a, 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 a broader um, nation, nationwide response. And I think that just reflects, you know, the, in the United States, we have a history of um, rugged individualism, um, which, and, and individual liberty. And we have weighted the needs of the individual over the needs of the many um, sort of time and time again. There's plenty of counterexamples, but I think sort of if you poll 50 Americans, would you say that community good or individual liberty is more important? How many of those folks are going to say individual liberty? It's probably going to be most. So, but, and, and so that informs the ways in which we talk about these kinds of situations that require massive response. I mean, right? Like we have, we have the pot, the very real possibility of recession and the, 
the like reality that we need, you know, a big, bold and, and messy, but quick responses at a, at a national level. Um, And, and you've got people wanting to throw in like abortion writers to legislation and like, you know, like essentially, um, seeing this as an opportunity to get individual policy um, passed, whereas like we need to be as a country laser focused on preventing spread of outbreak and, and because we can walk and chew gum and preventing major recession, right? Like major, major heartache. And this is true on the left too. I don't, I don't want to make it seem, you know, completely um, one-sided, like, you know, I, I, plenty of people who have responded to the idea of sending out checks to every man, woman, and child in the country saying, well, like, do the rich really need it? Like, no, like, we cannot means test right now, people, (laughs) like, like, we, like, that will slow it down, add bureaucracy, and quite frankly, it's a drop in the bucket, and you, like, we need to be fast, and that means those right? Good, fast, or cheap, right? Choose two. You can't have all, all of them. So we need good and fast. We can't worry about cheap. And, 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 and I just see like people, because we have been acculturated in this country, responding in an individual way. These are my individual policy preferences. These are my um, this is the the burden that I bear right now. Um, what can you do to fix it? Um, and and again, at, at least at least in the popular press, you know, it'll be interesting to do the retrospective. But places like um, South Korea have been have had much more of a uh, community community focus to their response. There's a couple of things there's I'm, I'm realizing as I as I just sit and and take in what you have to offer in this it's just it's it's so dense and rich and I, I want to ask you like 20 more questions but I also know that you have to get on to to the clinic where you work and care for people and so I just want to be um judicious in how I there's just there's a couple directions one one is just um well, one's more of a reflective thing, I guess, you know, because we talk about, you know, what are people going to say about this time? What will our children say about this time? What will our grandchildren? And, you know, someone posted something the other day about, um, you know, our our grandchildren are going to ask our children about this, you know, like this period in our, our I can say our nation's history, but it's, it's our, our global history about this time when we were all, when life ground to a halt, you know, over this worldwide pandemic. Um, And our kids are going to talk about the stories, you know, and the things that they experienced in the collective outpouring of responses. And, you know, someone called it, this is going to be our kids, you know, walking two miles uphill in the snow each day story, but it, it might have a little less bullshit attached to it. And oh, I'm, you might be surprised. Well, right. Yeah. We'll see what time does to all this reflection, but what are you, what are you doing to, to document this time um, and kind of reflect upon it in your own individual life and with your family? How are you feeling that? 
Um, so, so you sent that um, question this morning to me and I was like, God, what am I doing? No, it's, it's such a good question. And I think something all of us can ask ourselves because so far it's looked like, you know, like a couple of Instagram posts, hashtag quarantined kids kind of a deal and not, and it has, and I have not had, um, the time or space or honestly the inclination to document it in any real way other than that. Um, but the people who, who can write and can record and can do all of the artistic things that are not in this moment being, um, read or listened to or, or seen, um, though that's going to be super important, right? Like it's hard to see now when we can't go to a show or we can't go to our museums. Um, it's hard to see now the, the ways in which those people are going to be, um, honored for their contribution. Um, but we also have to remember, at least for us, like it's only been 10 days. You know, like it's only been 10 days and that's not to say that, that, um, you know, things that are drastically happening and and happening quickly, but, you know, for all the people who are like, I'm a performer and, you know, um, you know, is music dead? No, music is not dead, right? Like it is art dead. No, art is not dead. And it may take us some time um, to be able to, you know, safely go to a concert, to safely go out to our museums, to safely go to art shows, to, um, and all, all of that. However, like just happened yesterday, my husband said, um, hey, you know, our buddy um, who, who gave, you know, we got her painting last year, like she's been laid for off from her job. So, so we're going to buy, you know, a couple of her pieces and she's going to throw in some some like painting activities for, for freedom. Like that, like that's crucial. Right. And then that's, um, and then we're going to be able to, to say like, Oh, that's the painting that we got, you know, from her and from Paula and, and it was that time and, and reflect on it in that way. And so I think the people who, um, can document these things, both, both in like, like sort of a professional and analytical way, academic way, like they're obviously still doing what they're doing. But the people who can document it in a way that's like, um, that's emotional, that's, um, that's in the moment, that's, um, again, not being adequately um, accessed right now. I don't know how to like really talk about it, but we like, you know, we can't like, you know, there, there's a guy in Murphy's who, um, is a singer songwriter and like, like he's, he's doing these like super tiny micro concerts where he literally like goes to people's houses and he like, 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 you know, cleans up and stays in his little corner and like sings and plays his guitar in the, in, you know, in their living room. Um, I mean, there, there are ways in which like, creative people can get creative about not only bringing um bringing levity and community to situations but also to 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 document into this time absolutely i don't um 
and so other other more creative people have to do that. I I I have to I have to put my head down and go to work. <laughs> well, and I will say to that too. I appreciate that because you bring in that thing of patronage too. Because I mean, how because those of us that have any kind of extra resources and can't afford to buy a piece of art, can't afford to like. I don't know, PayPal, our musician friend, just a live stream from their living room to ours, you know, like pay a five, $10 live streaming fee, you know, throw some money in there. But like, that's huge, I think, because this is when, like you said, you know, we're not waiting for top down policies to be the, the only solution, you know, like we're pressing for them, but we're also creating our own solutions on the, on the threshing floor too. So I think that's really key that you bring that up. Um, I posted a piece that I didn't read. So it was a completely irresponsible post, which, you know, I tend to do sometimes, um, (laughs) that was talking about, um, you know, how maybe this virus is, is, kind of the thing that needed to happen for this, like, you know, as Joanna, Joanna Macy would call it like the great turning. Um, and there's these reports coming out, right. Of in China, in Italy and all these places where commerce and human activity, industrial human activity, I will say has all but shut down. You know, they're watching like, Whoa, look how clean the air is. You know, there's like reports of dolphins and fish and swans coming to you know the venice canals and and there's just a really mixed reaction like i have even just talking about that i have a really mixed reaction to that there's something so beautiful about you know like thinking about a dolphin in the venice canal and like oh wow the earth is getting to repair herself in a way that she never would have if we were just pressing forward yeah but as you said there's this very real loss of human life in the present there's also the inevitable fallout because i do think there's stuff like you said that we're not seeing there's there is going to be greater suicides there is going to be all sorts of heartache that we may not be witnessing who are in a more uh privileged bubble um and there's the economic fallout which is going to impact so many um so what are your i'm just curious your thoughts on that because there's this this balance right i mean you know the earth purging and healing itself yep. and maybe needed us to cease that kind of human activity yep. for a moment, but who, what a hefty price to pay as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I, I think my response to when you posted that was, um, my head says, sure. My heart says too soon. <laughs> and, and I still sort of, I still sort of feel that way. I, I just, I want to, I want to um, put a couple of things in, in a little bit more context, which is, um, so there is nothing new about pandemics and there, I mean, there's a little bit new about this one that, you know, if we, if you want, we can talk about, but, but there, there is nothing new about pandemics. There's nothing new about sort of like semi-global calamity. Um, there is, I think things feel new because the ways in which we're interacting with them are um, so close and in our homes. Um, I think it, it, it feels a lot new. It feels newer because we're, um, we're just, we're just exposed to it in different ways. The, you know, Pandemics have been with us always. Um, the this one is is 
interesting and different and scarier in some ways um and then not scarier in others and that but that the um it is so easy for humans to to forget i mean so i was in nursing school during h1n1 and it was um if people can remember that 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 far i mean it was really scary because it was killing pregnant women right like and it was um we didn't end up with nearly the numbers um because of a very effective public health response um and and because of the the specific ways in which that um that pathogen acts and that we got a vaccine relatively quickly i can't remember how long it was i want to say two years but that might be totally wrong in any case i can remember the fear and um and and everything didn't grind to a halt but it was um but it was very similar um i'm getting distracted your question about you know is this a time when people will I don't, I don't mean people when the decision makers who matter will say, Hey, look, like we've now had, you know, so-and-so many days of improved air pollution in Wuhan. Should we like think about that? I think we're giving people way too much credit. Like, like the, the, the draw and the, the, I I could be completely wrong, but I would be very surprised if we substantively change our relationship to industry. Now, what we may change is our relationship to um, uh, a completely integrated global economy. But I don't think that the impetus for that will be the environment. I think that the impetus will that for that will be people realizing, hey, the majority of our medical supplies come from China. The majority of our medications come from China. Um, our relationship with China is not being stewarded in a way that gives me great hope that that will continue to be the case. And so <clears throat> I suspect that the, that the decisions, I mean, it may be good for the planet if we try to repatriate as much as possible, you know, um, manufacturing um, of, you know, masks and medicines, like that will be a good because we don't, we won't have to be sh shipping things halfway across the planet <clears throat> just because they're cheaper. Um, those those things that are fundamentally good for the planet may end up happening, but I don't, I am not super hopeful that the motivation for that will be um, environmental stewardship. Um, sorry to be a downer. No, no, <laughs> but I, I think it's a prescient point because I think, you know, because there are some, some, you know, again, that documentation piece, some people are writing already about how, you know, the way we're responding 
now, finally, I guess, you know, to the, to the pandemic is the way we need to be responding to global warming. But the thing is, I just feel like it's still, even though we, we, we're seeing the effects in our lifetime and we'll continue to see them, you know, as far as like forest fires, all that, I still think it's too, it's too abstract, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree with you. I think too much of our day-to-day lives are tethered to the system as it is and it would require such a fundamental reimagining of the way we do life (laughs) Um, and most of us are not motivated to do that unless something like this completely you know interrupts and unsettles um yeah things as they are i want to just um what as you know as someone who wears those hats those you know that of the you know the healthcare provider um the mother the community member someone who studies and cares deeply about these things what do you want people to be contemplating and 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 doing <laughs> right now or not doing what what is what is your message to us as as humans who want to be part of the solution right now? What would you yeah. say to us? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, stay calm, you know? I, I mean, I understand the, um, I completely understand and empathize with the, uh, it is easier to respond with fear and anxiety and, um, and I just, you know, one of the, our biggest enemies in the coming days will be hysteria. And, um, and, and that includes, um, you know, I always would tell people don't get fi- on, don't get in fights on the internet, <laughs> but, but the, that includes fights in our, in our own lives. Um, the, you know, it so rarely serves you to, to get, to lose your mind such that you're, um, just reacting. And so this sort of forced separation from people, I think can be a really nice time to, to start a meditation practice, to, um, to attempt to be self-reflective about the ways in which reactions can be, um, can be emotional, can be, um, can be charged in in ways in which they're not fundamentally helpful to, you know, whatever problem is in front of you. Um, if we, I think that if we were all a little bit more self-reflective of the shit that comes out of our mouth, like if that's the only thing that comes out of it, that would be lovely. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of a a song from Frozen, <laughs> um, and it's not one of the better songs. It is um, underappreciated. The song where. Kristoff and Anna are like gonna about to be fake married by the trolls. Um, and, and 
it's a like lyrically really actually very interesting song but i think like it's so kind of goofy and silly that like people don't appreciate it but at one point and i'm not going to get the lyrics exactly right but at one point one of the troll moms says um like basically if if you're hungry or scared or stressed you're not at your best um but throw a little love their way and they'll bring out their best something like that something something like that and basically like I'm like singing it in my head right now, as you yeah. <laughs> yeah. make bad choices when they're bad, scared or stressed. Yeah. Yeah. Them. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's awesome. it. That's exactly right. Uh, we have children. We have little girls. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I like things really can be that basic. Um, it is. Uh, it, it, it you know time to get basic, right? Like time to time to um, focus more on the um, politics that are at your at your local level in your city in your in your counties to like refocus your um, energies into the people who live next to you. Um, the I. I I think that the interconnectedness of our lives make it really easy to turn our focus uh, to um, to national or global politics. But like, um, you know, staying calm and being basic. They say move into the edges of the thing the place where it brushes up against the surface of another entity, the place where encounter takes place, where friction builds, confrontation, embrace, surrender, advance. These things take place at the edges where the clear lines of one thing blur into the topography of another. I am learning to soften at this place. I breathe into my heart, the soft space of my belly, and I can feel a ripening there, a sloughing off of old familiar shell. I am surprised by the tenderness I find here. I wonder what it is that caused me to build up so much armor, to carry around an invisible tortoise shell upon my bare skin. I wonder what it was that first inspired the growth of callous, hardened cells. What caused me to encase the pillow of my body, my quivering heart, inside this impermeable sheath? Or does it matter, the initial impetus, so long as now, at this ripe, old, yet maybe still young age, I am learning to pry it open, to poke my little turtle head outside its small, familiar confines and consider the world beyond this place. My edges, they are softening blurring. I am learning to breathe into them, into you, into the possibility of this tender, scrappy, 
gorgeous, humble life. What would happen if I were to fully embrace the delightful calamity of it all? The line keeps humming in my mind. Teach me how to love. For it is a skill I feel I never had much learning in. And it seems perhaps the only job that may be worthwhile. Teach these fumbling hands. This broken, open heart. This thick but willing mind. Teach me how to love, I pray. And I breathe into the belly once again. I feel the flutter in my chest. This might just be my bravest move yet.